I decided to lean over to Dave and say a joke, you know, and so I told him a joke, and Dave did not respond how he usually responds to my joke, which is to die with laughter, okay? He didn't respond that way. Instead, he looked scared. He looked around to see who had seen or who had heard this joke, and he said, hey, man, this is Seattle. You can't say that here. And I was really confused. I was like, this isn't like that inappropriate of a joke. Uh, I've said it many times in Denver and got great laughs because I'm a funny, funny person, you know? <laughs> I couldn't really conceive of why this wasn't working. And, um, and, but he said no. He was really worried that someone uh, passing by would hear this joke and, and get into some sort of altercation. I'm not sure what still, but into some sort of altercation over my joke that I had said. And, uh, it was just really interesting to me. He had to protect me before we got in trouble. Um, and and, and we, I use that to say that, that Seattle is a really religious culture, isn't it? Um, maybe some of you look at me and you're like, nah, bro, like, I don't think you understand what religious is here, you know? Um, but in reality, uh, I would agree with you that I would say there's not much formal religion in Seattle. There's not much formal religion at all. But in reality, uh, if we talk about re uh, religious in terms of just a, a list of acceptable uh, behavioral actions that you can do or you can't do, um, Seattle, I think, is very, very religious. Um, think about it with me for a sec. So if, if you are on the road driving your car and there, there's a list of rules over what you can and can't do, right? And if the cop sees you uh, breaking one of those rules, um, you're, he's going to give you a ticket. But on an even deeper level, there's this certain unwritten code, isn't there, on the road? And, and if you break one of those rules, you're going to get honked at. I get honked at a lot. I mean, usually I'm, I'm riding my bike and so I'm in the car and I don't know how, you, there's, there's extra rules here, okay? I didn't get honked at in Denver, I get honked at here. And so some of you are looking at me like, yeah, this guy, you know, but that's me, sorry. I'm still learning. Um, so there, there's kind of this unwritten rules that we follow. And then if you think about it, uh, also in just greater social places within the city. If you go into a Starbucks or a grocery store, there's a way that you should behave in there, that the government says that you, you can't be violent and you can't steal, of course, but there's also an unwritten set of rules, isn't there? Like, you can't run to the front of the Starbucks, cut all of the line, and then just shout your order at the barista, right? Like, try that and tell me how it goes, okay? Um, and then even on just a, a more serious level, we have uh, rules and a religion, a social order that governs the workplace. And over the past couple weeks, maybe the past full months, with all the allegations of Henry Weinstein, we've actually found out that this has been uh, broken in far, far more many and deeper ways than we ever imagined throughout our entire society. Last week, I had the chance, uh, just kind of reading up on this and, and mourning it, I had the chance to read an article entitled um, 41 Ways, or 41 Things You Should Never Say to Your Female Coworker. This is a religion, this is a, a social code, and, and I use all of these to say just that our culture is very, very religious. We're steeped in a very religious culture that has a lot of uh, rules of what you can and can't do. What we're going to see tonight is that Jesus bumped up against the religion of his day, too. He bumped up against the religion of his day, and he contrasted it directly with the religion that he was trying to start, Christianity. And, and, and what we're going to see is that this religion was different than the religion of the day, because it was focused on human flourishing, 
Focus on trying to make humanity and culture absolutely flourish. And, and some of you at this point might say, well, well, yeah, like that's why we have these social codes, right? Like that's why the religion of the day is what it is. We're just trying to, to set ourselves up for, for human flourishing. I'd say, absolutely, that's why we've done that. That is the motivation for our laws and even our unwritten code. Like people honk at me in the car because they, want, they need to get somewhere to get home faster, right? But what I want to ask you guys tonight is, is it working? Is it working? Is the, the religious code of our day actually bringing about human flourishing? Because I'm not sure that we can say that it is. I'm not sure we can say that it is. Because when I look out at our culture, I see a population that is deeply seeking meaning and purpose in, in, in such deep, deep ways yet completely disconnected, and this is a broad brushstroke, but, but for, for the large part, disconnected and disenchanted from their work and from their jobs. Disconnected and disenchanted with the relationships that they have. I, I see a, a culture that, that has an epidemic of, of loneliness where, where, where people actually are consuming more social media, where people are consuming more, or, or consuming more entertainment than they ever have before. Like, I, it's almost like the people go through the workday and it's, it's a drudge and they consume the entertainment to get back up and then the next workday and the next workday and the next workday and people are really miserable. And there's this epidemic of loneliness, and then we can look at the deep, pervasive societal ills of, of homelessness, of broken family, of, of, of sexual harassment in the workplace. And I, think, I, I don't think we can conclude that the religion of the day is working. I don't think we can conclude that. And you, you might look back at me and say, well, well yeah, uh, it's not working, but the, the church really hasn't worked either. Like, we can all probably think of instances, uh, at least in history, when the church has messed up a lot. And the church has been the primary transgressor of not letting humans flourish, can't we? Can't we? And, and some of us probably have some examples that are in real time, too. Recently, maybe you experienced one of these times. <clears throat> But, but what I'm going to contend for and what Jesus is going to show is that there's, there's largely a misunderstanding of, of, of what Christianity is. And it has been abused throughout the histories. And at the end of the day, we still need something new. And that something new is something very old that Jesus was doing. All right, and, and what Jesus is going to show us tonight in Mark is, is really awesome. He's going to show us two different uh, pitfalls that, that religion can fall into He's going to show us two different pitfalls, and, and today those manifest in two different versions of Christianity altogether. The, the, the first one is this. The first version, um, it claims to be different than the religion of the day, but it isn't. It claims to be different than the religion of the day, but it actually isn't. All right, that's the first version. And then the other version that, that, that we're going to see confronted is, is um, the version that misunderstands the point of religion altogether. And, and, and there, have been, there are, are versions of this in our city, in churches, and entire denominational lines where you could say, you know what, they don't understand what religion is, or you know what, they, they think that they're delivering a new religion, but it's actually not any different than the religion of the day. All right? So, so that's kind of a long intro to, to show you what uh, Mark is doing for us tonight because he actually groups all of this together for us in Mark. It's really nice with three different stories here. Um, and so we're just going to dive right into it, all right? The first one is he, uh, he shows us that version of, uh, of religion that looks or that says, that says it's different than the religion of the day. 
but it actually isn't. Pick it up with me in verse 18, all right? It says, Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And the people came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? This is a very interesting question here. Uh, the, the Pharisees were the religious leaders of the day, and what they had done was they had uh, actually set up this huge fasting schedule that isn't found anywhere kind of in the, the Old Testament law. They created their own, which was at certain times of the year they fasted, and then every Monday and Thursday they fasted. How would you like to be part of that religion? You know, lots of fasting going on here. But what the people of the day see, they, they look at, the, at these religious leaders, they see their disciples are fasting. They look at Jesus, who's showing up on the scene and saying, repent and believe the gospel, another religious figure and leader of types. Um, and they're saying, oh wait, there's no practice of this fasting religion. What's going on here, you know? And then we get mystic Jesus. We get mystic Jesus. Do you, do you guys know who mystic Jesus is? If, if you've read the Gospels, you've encountered mystic Jesus. Mystic Jesus can't give a straight answer to a straight question, right? Mystic Jesus makes these sermons like longer than they have to be, okay? But mystic Jesus replies with three metaphors, and we're, we're, we're going to work through them here, okay? He, in verse 19, it says, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. Then they will fast in that day. So this is a metaphor, and Jesus is likening him and his entourage of disciples to a, a wedding. He's saying, I'm the groom, I'm showing up. You Pharisees uh, are, are, are trying to get them to fast, and you're wondering why they're not fasting. Well, it's because we're celebrating at the end of the day, Jesus is saying, they're not fasting because I'm great. <laughs> they're not fasting because I'm awesome and I'm to be celebrated. It's really interesting. Jesus kind of assuming an authority here of religious action. So that's the first thing this metaphor kind of unpacks for us. The second thing is um, Jesus identifies his disciples' personal acts of religion. He ties them to relationship with him. They can't fast now because I'm, I'm here, but they'll fast someday when I'm not here. You see, you see that happening? All of uh, his disciples' personal acts of religion are tied directly to relationship. And I, I don't want to spend a lot of time on this point. I want to move on to our kind of evaluation of what religion is. But, but this kind of leads to the question for all of us followers of Jesus. Do you view that your personal kind of acts of devotion, whether that be reading your Bible, um, praying, fasting, do you view those as attached to relationship? Because chances are, if you're just using them as a checkbox, you're not getting much out of it. So, so try to view these personal acts of devotion through the lens of human flourishing. All right, but I, I, I want to, or through, through the lens of um, relationship. But I want to focus on these next two metaphors. They're, they're both parallel. They're both saying the same thing, all right? In verse 21, Jesus says, No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed. And so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. All right. What's Jesus saying here? Jesus is saying that you can't add him to the religion of the day. 
He likens the, the religion of the day to a, a garment, a cloak, you could say, that has holes in it. So there's kind of an assessment like, hey, this is broken, guys. And what you can't do, just like kind of we evaluated, hey, our religion of the day, hey, it's broken. It's not leading to, to human flourishing. What you can't do is just add Jesus right on top of the religion of the day. And, and this is kind of what we really want to do as Christians for our friends sometimes, isn't it? We, 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 at the end of the day, we were like, hey, I just want this person to, to come to church. Like maybe even they're experiencing how the religion of the day isn't working. Maybe they're starting to feel how there's holes in that cloak. And, and so we, sit, we look at them and say, hey, you know what? Like Christianity is really all about love. It's all about acceptance. It's all about, it's all about tolerance. So you should just come to church and see, and see if you can start feeling better about it. But in reality, it's still an old garment. And a new garment, the new piece of cloth of Jesus, he says, needs an entire new garment. What we mean, Christianity definitely is loving, accepting, uh, tolerant, but we mean very different things when we say those words than the, the, the religion of the day. And, and what happens when, when we say this to our friends and they come and they end up trying to patch up Jesus onto their holy garment, Jesus says, is it tears away and it makes the whole worse. They're actually worse off that when they started, that, that you put the new wine into the old wineskin and it completely explodes, Jesus said. It'll blow up their life. All right? And so we, we just want to add Jesus, but, but in reality, here's what's true about the religion of our day. Do you know why it isn't working? It, it, it's not working. Um, there's a social science work that was written in the mid-80s, and in that social science work, um, it's called Habits of the Heart, uh, and it's probably the best social science work on American individualism written in the last four decades. And, and, and in that social science work, um, Robert uh, Bella, he's the chief editor, and four other editors, they say this, this is what our culture operates on. They examine kind of the roots of individualism and why we do what we do It's social science, right? And, and th th they say this, our human, uh, all of our public responsibility in culture, Americans, you, or you could call it religion, all of our, our public responsibility is rooted in an adaptation of the golden rule. It's rooted in an adaptation of the golden rule. You, you all know what the golden rule is, right? Do to others what you want them to do to you. But we actually don't practice this in society, right? Um, we practice an adaptation of it that goes like this. Don't do to others what you don't want them to do to you. Don't do to others what you don't want them to do to you. This is actually, the, the, this is the, the greater religion of our day that says, you know what? We should just not injure one another. We should do no harm when we go out into the public sphere, right? This is what we all learned in school. Don't do that. If you don't want it done to you, don't do it to them. And, and in reality, this religion of the day is incapable and is inconsistent with Jesus' religion of the day, which is to love God and to love neighbor. Love God and love neighbor. In fact, at one point in, in Matthew 22, uh, we have a slide for it. This is how Jesus talks about his religion. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the law, all, all the law and the prophets. So Jesus' religion is altogether different. 
Our religion pr produces lists of 41 ways not to sexually assault a woman in the workplace. Jesus' religion says, how about we contend for loving and respecting women in the workplace? Which is gonna be more fruitful? Which is gonna lead to human flourishing? I think it's Jesus's every time. So I'm here today to tell you that the religion of the day in Christianity, Jesus's religion, are night and day different. And we, this is how we have to hold them. <clears throat> the pro, part of the problem is, is that it's easy for Christians to slip into the religion of the day. Because after all, this is what we were raised in. This is what we were raised in, and this is what we know for the greater part. And, and so I have some questions tonight to kind of help you kind of think through um, whether or not you, you may have slipped into or you've only ever accepted stamping Jesus onto the religion of the day. And so if you would answer no to any of these questions, that might indicate that, oh, you know what, maybe, maybe I slipped into the religion of the day, all right? So let's unpack, I'll, I'll just say I'm here. Um, do your friends and coworkers know that you're a church-going Christian? Is there friction between your Christianity and your partisan politics? Um, an, I guess a, another way I could say that is if, if you tend to vote Democrat, is it still hard to vote Democrat? If you vote Republican, is it still hard to check that box? I'm not talking about just Donald Trump either, but just any Republican. There's parts of the Democratic and Republican platform that, that are very inconsistent with the kingdom of God, of love God and love neighbor. There's on both sides. Is it hard for you to vote? Do you feel challenged in your Christian walk? Do you mourn the brokenness of our city? And, and th th this one is a little bit difficult, so I'm gonna unpack it at length for us. Um, do you have relationships with poor people? Do you have relationships with poor people? You see, we, we have a, Another definition of what religion is in the Bible, it's in the book of James, if we want to throw it up, up there on the, the slides here. And it says, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. See how that's just a, a it's like a second version of loving God and, and loving others. On the, on the back end here, keep one's un, oneself unstained from the world is another way to say loving God. And up on front it says uh, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. Uh, that's, that's part of loving neighbor there. Um, and uh, that word visiting is relational. If, if you're like me and you've signed up for a compassion child and they take the $38 out of your bank account every month and you never have to think of it, uh, th th really think about it, um, you can't check this box off. This is relationship. This is relationship. And, and as I've gotten to know Sedaris over the last four or so months, I, I'm not sure of how many relationships like this we have in our body. I, I think that this is kind of pushing us to the edge of our growth as a church. It's pushing me to the edge of mine, at least. Uh, I'm not up here scolding you from a place of righteousness. I've just read this a week before you have signed up to be a big brother. I'm going to meet with my little uh, three to four times a month here on out. You know, need to have a relationship with him. A relationship with people less fortunate than myself. All right? And I think some of us kind of recoil from these questions or we may kind of feel them hitting us because we know that to do these kind of things, to love God and to love neighbor, that's going to ask sacrifice from us. That's going to be really, really hard. 
But sacrifice is where joy comes from. Sacrifice is where human flourishing can actually start. Loving God and loving neighbor actually does lead to sacrifice. Yes, absolutely. And it's so different, the joy that comes from it is so wonderful, but it's something that our culture can't deliver on because our culture just says this, protect your time, protect your money, protect your relationships, walk around like a zombie making sure you don't offend anybody. That doesn't lead to human flourishing. That just leads to do not injure. And that's not working. That's not working. Jesus' religion got him nailed to a cross. Sacrifice all the way to the point of the cross. And he would say that for his followers, for anybody to follow him, would to pick up their cross and follow him as well. But here's the thing about the cross. After the sacrifice of the cross comes the resurrection. God looks at sacrifice and says, finally, something I can work with, something I can bring human flourishing into the world, something I can attach my kingdom to. And so this sacrifice, while it is difficult for us who've been raised in a culture just not to injure, it's hard, I get that. That's actually where you're going to find the most joy in your life. I guarantee it. I absolutely guarantee it. I know it's, it's going to be hard, like biking around Seattle to meet three to four times a month with my little hair starting soon. But man, I know that I'm going to reap incredible joy and satisfaction, and I'm going to start to see human flourishing in it. And so I'm going to do it, you know? And, and so this can be difficult, loving God, loving neighbor. That's, that's complicated. I mean, that's abstract. Like, what does this actually look like? And the, the great thing is, is that Jesus never decided or never thought that you'd be doing this alone, that this is to be discovered in community. This is why we preach sermons. This is why we have eight fellowship groups meeting throughout the city. They're all about figuring out what does it mean to love God and love neighbor. I think our Wallingford group is spending a whole semester on just that phrase this, this semester, just three months on it. All right, so love God, love neighbor, discovered in community, all right? So that, that's the, the, the refutation of the first version of Christianity. It just seeks to add it to the religion of the day. <clears throat> Let's move on to the second one, okay? And that's in our, our second story here, which is immediately following. It starts in verse 23. One Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, uh, the, he is Jesus here, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain, and the Pharisees were saying, look, why are they doing what's not lawful on the Sabbath? So the disciples just can't really catch a break here. First, they're, they're, they're not doing what they're supposed to be doing with the whole fasting thing, and now they are doing what they're not supposed to be doing. <laughs> but, but Sabbath was actually uh, one of the Ten Commandments. And uh, just being one of the Ten Commandments is actually should kind of tip us off that Sabbath observance is really, really important. But what's also interesting is it's the longest of the Ten Commandments. Um, and it, it looks like this in, in Exodus 20. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. You are to labor six days and do all your work, but the seventh, pe- the seventh payday, uh, I don't think it's to say payday, that was a typing error by me. But the seventh day, it's funny though, <laughs> it's really good. <laughs> <laughs> the seventh day is, uh, that's, that's just how I think about work. <laughs> the seventh day is, is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. You must not do any work. You, your son or daughter, your male or female servant, your livestock, or the resident alien who is within your gates. For the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and everything in them six days. Then he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day, and he declared 
it holy. He declared it holy. And so the Pharisees, um, they're kind of the lawyers of the day, and, and they had to figure out, well, what does it actually mean to observe the Sabbath? You know, what does that actually mean? And what they actually did was they distilled down uh, 39 types of work, like blacksmith, um, doctors, all 39 different types of work. And under each one of these things, they outlined point by point and paragraph by paragraph what was permissible and what wasn't permissible by that profession in order to keep the Sabbath, in order to keep Sabbath on Sabbath day. It was long, it was exhausting. Uh, for people like transporting goods, uh, you could transport something that weighed up to two dried figs in your pocket, but don't go over it. Stuff like this. <laughs> Pretty crazy, right? But Jesus' response is this, okay? He says this in verse 25. Have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of, of Abiathar the high priest and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and he also gave it to those who were with him. See what Jesus is doing here? It's, it's, it's pretty insane and it would have enraged the Pharisees. What he's saying is he's saying, me and my followers breaking the law right now, just walking down the road and kind of getting a snack, is the same thing as David and his followers breaking the law when, when he was being chased by his enemies and needed to eat in order to fight. He's likening himself to David. This would have enraged the Pharisees. He's saying, David broke the law so I can. They would have been like, yeah, he was David. And there was kind of some extenuating circumstances going on there. Who are you to say that you can also break the law just like David, God's anointed, who God made a special covenant with? That's crazy. But Jesus takes it even further. In verse 27, it says, And he said to them, Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord of even the Sabbath. The Son of Man is Lord, even of the Sabbath. Son of Man is Jesus' favorite way to refer to himself. Uh, in, in the Gospels, it happens like somewhere between like 30 and 40 times, I think. He calls himself the Son of Man, and it comes directly from an obscure passage in an obscure prophetic book called Daniel, where there's this, this Son of Man who comes on the clouds, it's this exalted king-like finger. God gives him dominion over all of the nations of the earth and full reign over it. And so what Jesus is saying is like, yeah, I'm actually a little bit above David. I'm actually the one who decides what the religion of the day is going to be. I'm actually the Lord of the Sabbath. And, and here in this sermon series, we've entitled, the, the mo, entitled it the most important question ever asked. And, and, and that question goes like this. Who do you say that Jesus is? And Jesus would say this to his disciples at one point later in Mark. Who do you say that I am? Who do you say that Jesus is? And the answer that he's giving us right here is the king come to reign of Lord over the religion of the day and the one to bring true life-giving religion of human flourishing to the world. To the world. So that's what he's saying. That's his authority. But then he also takes time to kind of correct the, the religion of the day, which is what I want us to focus on. He says here, uh, so the son of, oh, he says, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for Sabbath. The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. 
See, what the Pharisees had done in, in the scriptures is they had found something very interesting. They studied the scriptures and knew them better than anybody. That's the Old Testament in your Bible. Um, they'd done something better than anybody, and they had found this thing called a redemption loop. That, well, I, I call it a, a redemption loop, but the, the, they found it, and it looks like this. Uh, God gave Israel the promised land, right? And the Israelites take possession of the promised land. God says, hey, you guys should drive out all the peoples from the promised land because I don't want you to start adopting the religion of the day. They don't do that, okay? And before long, they adopt the religion of the day. They adopt the religion. God just becomes a, a, a list of all these other gods for them. They adopt the religion of the day, and what God does is, is he stops protecting them. Then they're invaded by outside armies, and they're oppressed by outside nations, and eventually they cry out to God, and they ask him to save them. They cry out, they cry out, they cry out, and God, out of his loving kindness and his mercy, remembers his side of the covenant when they haven't. And he saves them. It's what he does with all his people. He remembers his side of the covenant, and he saves them. And the Pharisees, at this point in Israel's history, they're in the redemption loop of the oppression part. Rome was ruling over Israel, and the Pharisees had concluded that if we just start holding the law really good, if we start holding back to that, God will deliver us and give us the nation of Israel again. That's largely a misunderstanding of this redemption loop that happened throughout the scriptures. God never delivered them because they were obeying him again, or they were obedient. God delivered them because he loved them and had mercy. And after that, then he would give them, hey, can you keep my law, please, and not adopt the religion of the day? That's the order that it worked. So these Pharisees misunderstood that that redemption loop. They saw uh, religion and holding acts of religion as crucial to maintain God's favor. And many churches do the same today. And many churches have done the same thing that the Pharisees did, was alienate the people that aren't holding God's law. Alienate them. And so, but when we start to look at what the Sabbath is, Sabbath is being made for man and not man for the Sabbath. As Jesus says, he's trying to contend for the human flourishing. What he's saying is that, hey, humans are are hardwired to experience Sabbath for it to make them happy, not so that the Sabbath or God can be made happy. Religion is for human flourishing, not for religion's sake, guys. And many churches make this same mistake. But when we talk about Sabbath, it's, it's so, so, or so when we talk about Sabbath, it's not me as your pastor saying, like, I hope that you can start observing Sabbath because until you do, like, God's going to, he's really disappointed in that, that you're not doing Sabbath. Now, this is me as your pastor saying, like, I hope you're observing Sabbath in your life. I hope that one day a week you're you're turning off all your work, you're turning off your email, you're you're turning off your phone, you're getting away from all these screens that actually don't let us rest at all. I hope at least one day a week you're taking a step back to focus on the meaningful relationships that you have in your life, your relationship with God, your relationship with your family, your closest friends. I hope that you're experiencing the nature God's created for you because if you're not, you're not flourishing to the potential that you could be. That makes me really sad. <laughs> you, see, you see the difference in the presentation of a religion that's focused on religion's sake and a religion that's focused on human flourishing? They're very night and day different. One hurts people, one sets them up to flourish. Um, a couple weeks ago, I was looking at online videos, you know, 
all uh, on Facebook, I think. And there was this one video of this, this kind of older guy, and he was on his porch, and it was his birthday, and his present was kind of on the ground next to him, and his whole family was standing around, I think, and they were like, open your present, open your present, you know? Just kind of a big, beefy, intimidating guy with a huge white mustache. And I was scared of him, but I was like, oh, let's watch him open his present. That's what we do, right? We just watch people do things, weird things. Um, anyways. Good thing I did, because I have this illustration. Okay, um, so he picked up the bag, and he took a while, and he, he opened it, and eventually, after a while, he was like, it's sunglasses, and I was like, I just watched all this to see him open sunglasses. Like, come on, come on, you know? But his whole family was really excited. They were like, hey, put them on, put them on, put them on. And so he did, and he put on his sunglasses, and, and then he froze, and then he started weeping. And, and it, it, it was clear that, that he had suffered from colorblindness his whole life, and these glasses were reversing the effects of these color, this colorblindness, and, and he was just weeping. He could see color again. He could see color again. When we look at religion through the lens of human flourishing, it's colorful. It's beautiful. We can, when we look at the religion through the lens of, of human flourishing, all of a sudden, all the black and white stuff, which is on how to navigate your relationships, how your relationship to alcohol should be, how your relationship to your finances, your, your family should be, how your relationship to the world should be, when, when we start to evaluate all of this through the lens of human flourishing, it becomes so colorful and beautiful and meaningful, and the thought that you're left with is, if only everybody got on board with this, it'd be great. So looking at religion through the lens of human flourishing, this is the religion that Jesus wanted to bring about. And at some point later in his ministry, this is recorded in John 10, he would say, I came that my followers might have life. It wasn't enough to say that. He followed up with, and life abundantly. The Christian religion is meant so people can thrive. So people can thrive. And churches that end up hurting people usually aren't putting on these lenses of human flourishing on religion. They're usually thinking that religion needs to be kept for religion's sake so that we can get, still maintain God's favor and not make him disappointed. And anything that kind of threatens that, we have to kick out of our church. And those are actually, honestly, the people that are broken and need to be brought in more than anything. It just pains my heart. <clears throat> All right, so, so that's a, a refutation of just... Uh, the religion that's focused has a, a bad view of what religion actually is for. It's for human flourishing, not for religion's sake. And Jesus illustrates this here in chapter three, or Mark illustrates it for us by throwing in something that happened in the synagogue in chapter three. We're gonna work through it real quick, okay? It's great. Three verse one. Again, Jesus entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. See, they've set a trap. One of these 39 areas of work referred to doctors. And doctors couldn't straighten stiff bodies on the Sabbath. They actually couldn't even set a bone unless the bone had broken through the skin. Uh, doctors could only uh, administer medical attention if someone is in a, a life-threatening state. All right? So they, they've set a trap for him. And Jesus said to the man with the withered hand, come here. And he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? So Jesus sniffs out the trap. He makes it a spectacle. 
He sniffs out the trap. He makes it a complete spectacle. And he says, is it lawful to do good or to harm? You see, this is the religion of love and neighbor kind of rearing its head here. To do nothing would have been to do evil to Jesus. To do evil would be to do nothing. Right? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart. Um, hardness of heart is always the biggest obstacle to religion that's focused on human flourishing. Don't fool yourself about anything else. It's hardness of heart that sets itself up against a religion that's actually bringing human flourishing, okay? And he said to the man, stretch out your hand. Stretch out your hand. This is an invitation. Think about what this scene actually looks like. You got the Pharisees on one side, Jesus on the other, the man standing up, perhaps somewhere in between them. And Jesus is asking him, do you want to go with the religion of your day or do you want to raise your hand right now? Do you want to raise your hand and do you want to be healed? It's a really simple question for us, right? Like, well, obviously, like, if the religion of the day says that you're going to be, you're going to have a withered hand for the rest of the day, possibly the rest of your life, you never encountered Jesus, like, you're obviously going to choose Jesus. But this man was risking being thrown out of these Pharisees' synagogue for aligning themselves with Jesus, for aligning himself with Jesus and giving himself the opportunity. And he does, he stretches it out, and his hand was restored. And the Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him, that is against Jesus, how to destroy him. See the irony that Mark kind of puts in verse six there for us? I was talking to uh, our very own Josh Stinger on, uh, on Thursday night, and I said, hey Josh, what did you do at work today? And he's like, well, I had three meetings. Here we have meetings. The Pharisees are working on the Sabbath to kill Jesus. Whereas Jesus, and they're upset about him healing somebody. But they're actually breaking the Sabbath themselves. So the, the, the religion of the day, it contradicts itself. The religion of the day contradicts itself. Thank God that the guy rose his hand and asked for healing. Thank God that that, that man, he rose his hand. He recognized that the religious system of the day wasn't going to set him up for any flourishing, and he rose his hand. And that same invitation is for all of us, too. Jesus is making the invitation to the people of Seattle saying, raise your hand so that you can experience human flourishing because until you do, you're just gonna have lists and lists of rules of do not injure, do not harm that are gonna be ineffectual in your life. Come to my religion. Yes, there's gonna be tons of sacrifice. I'm not gonna lie. I'm not gonna sugarcoat this for you. The Christian life is one of sacrifice, but it's one of sacrificial beauty. The fact that Jesus went to the cross has brought more human flourishing than ever. On the cross, he enabled humanity to come to God and have a relationship with God once again, and that, from there, all human flourishing enters creation. Millions, billions of people have experienced the flourishing of Jesus' sacrifice. This is the call for us to do it as well. So who do you say that Jesus is? Is he the, the Messiah, son of man, coming on the clouds to reign over all of creation with a true and perfect life-giving religion that will bring human flourishing as we sacrifice? I hope you can say yes. 
But if you're not quite there yet, that's okay too. That's okay too. Please keep on coming back and considering with us. Sedaris is a safe place where you can continue to ask who Jesus is every week. All right? Pray with me. Father, I... We're just so humbled right now as we look at your son and how he followed a religion of, of loving you and loving us to the point where he died altogether, to the point where, where he was killed on the cross. And, and we, we, we thank you of, of that example of how that resurrection, him coming up to give life to all who follow him, God, was the necessary response of sacrifice and the religion of loving God and loving neighbor. Lord, right now I pray for my friends who are still debating who Jesus is uh, and and who they say Jesus is, God. I pray that you would continue to bring them back to ask this question each and every week. I ask that that you would uh, continue to protect them in their week, God, and that, Lord, I pray you'd give them a growing uh, dissatisfaction with the religion of our day that can't deliver happiness or satisfaction like you can, Lord. I pray for my friends here who may have felt convicted about how perhaps their their religion might be looking like the religion of the day or how their religion might just be for religion's sake, God. I pray that that you would show them your grace, that you would call them to repent from all all the ways they may have uh, distorted your word. I pray you empower our leaders, God, as they help people find out what it means to love God and love neighbor. I pray you'd give them the lenses of human flourishing to lead people. God, We're here because you're great and we're not. And we praise you that you and your mercy have saved us, not because of anything we've done, but so that we could experience flourishing. Pray all this in the name of Jesus and by the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.